Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. China is Australia's largest trading partner and the biggest customer for its iron ore. Yet both nations acknowledge serious difficulties in their relationship. China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs puts the blame on the Australian side, whereas the Australians claim it's all the fault of the Chinese. In particular, the Chinese take umbrage at Australia's demand that there should be a full investigation into the causes of COVID. The Chinese government is also irritated by the way successive Australian governments have moved ever closer into a security pact with the United States. Well, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast a guest who's ideally placed to analyse Australia's foreign policy. He's Dr Charles Edel, Australia Chair and Senior Advisor at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Charles, welcome to China in Context. Thanks so much for having me on today, Duncan. Now, 10 years ago, when Julia Gillard was Australia's Prime Minister, she seemed to take an optimistic view of China. If Australia became more engaged with its Asian neighbours, including China, the view was that its economy would thrive and there'd also be many cultural benefits. Talk us through how attitudes have changed since then, please. Sure, Duncan. Uh, You know, we don't have to go back all that far, right? It was only in 2014 that Xi Jinping visited Australia, visited Canberra, made a speech to the Australian uh, parliament where he talked about an era of friendship and goodwill uh, towards uh, Australia and between Australia and China. And the context for that, of course, is that as the Chinese economy grew, uh, that growth was often fueled off of commodities and production and manufacture. And it was Australia that was in large part um, uh, supplying many of those commodities. So over the past 30 years, uh, we saw a tripling in Australian trade uh, to China. And we can say that uh, around about the same time that Xi Jinping was there, Tony Abbott, former Australian prime minister, said there was another uh, driver, that Australia's relations with China were predicated on uh, both greed and fear. And over the last couple of years, we've seen uh, the fear factor rise and the greed factor been tempered uh, more than it had in the past. Well, you mentioned there the increased trade between Australia and China, but since then, China's imposed trade sanctions on many Australian products, including coal, seafood, wine, so what are the significant Australian exports to China now? And, and, and what's been the impact on the Australian economy? As I said that at the high point, right, we're talking 40% of Australian trade going north uh, to China. And it's not just iron ore, although that's, of course, the largest uh, export uh, commodity. We're also talking about coal, gas, agricultural products and earnings from Chinese students and businesses. In the aftermath of the Australian government's call for there to be an international investigation into the origins of COVID in order that we can find out what went wrong and nothing ever happened again, the Chinese began to pile on a series of economically coercive measures, uh, either slowing down trade, calling for more inspections, with the obvious understanding behind this that if they squeezed the Australians you would have a political effect, right? If you squeezed Australian exporters, they would call their senators and their MPs and complain, and therefore the critique of China by Australia would go away. 
Now, what's really fascinating is both on the economic front, that's not happened because these are commodities that are sold on global markets. And in fact, even as the economic punishment has ramped up from China, Australian trade has done just fine because it's found other purchasers on the global market. And the more interesting political dynamics that I think Beijing was hoping to see happen, right? That if you squeezed Australia, the Australian government would go mute because it would just could not absorb that amount of economic pain. It's had the opposite effect of what the Chinese intended. And you have a more vocal Australian government and a more united body politic angered by what it's seen as economic coercion originating from China. Well, I could also add, Charles, that it had major international implications because those more economic coercive actions by China, as you described them, certainly didn't go unnoticed in other countries. And in fact, many other governments have said that they see now China as being a strategic threat as a result of this kind of activity. Well, I think you're absolutely uh, right, uh, Duncan, that you know China has used economic coercion before. It's used it against the Philippines, Japan, Norway, but it generally tends to be on one sector at a time. Uh, so we'll we'll go after rare earths. We'll we'll let your Philippine bananas rot on the docks. Australia is the first country where it had multiple sectors across the entire sweep of their economy sanctions slow down at once. And this indeed, uh, the entire world took notice of this. But the uh, other effect here, I think, is it was not only in the economic space. Um, the Chinese ambassador and the embassy in Australia, right as this was starting, went to the Australians with a list of 14 demands in writing. They said, we can get relations back on track if you accede to these 14 demands. Now, these demands were frankly preposterous. You know, it entailed everything from uh, your press should no longer criticize China. Your MPs should not speak negatively about China. You shouldn't have think tanks that produce out scurrilous reports on the Chinese. Uh, basically, we want you to mute all of your democratic society and civil institutions, what they have to say. Now, I, I bring this up, Duncan, because when Scott Morrison, the former Australian PM, traveled to the uh, G7 in Rome, Italy, he brought the 14 points with him and said to his counterparts, this is what we're dealing with. This is what we're trying to deal with. Not only an increasingly repressive China domestically and a more externally aggressive China, but one that is trying to mute debate within democratic society. So it really has had a galling effect internationally, I think. Australia's defence minister, Richard Miles, has spoken about playing a leading role in Indo-Pacific security and building a closer partnership with the United States. Now, Mr Miles is part of Australia's Labour government, led by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, uh, which was formed after the election in May 2022. Do you think that this administration is inclined to take just as hawkish tone on China as its predecessors? Um, so uh, I would quibble with the word hawkish, just saying assertive is probably a better uh, line uh, and descriptor for what they're at, Duncan. But I think the answer is in large part, yes. Uh, in the run-up to that May election, uh, the Labour Party, which had been in opposition, which is now in power, said there will be no substantive difference between the policies that the former government has taken and ours. The major change will come in tone in rhetoric. Uh, oftentimes they've been too harshly critical of the Chinese, 
uh, moving in front of our allies. That was the labor critique of the liberal government. Uh, but in substance, we don't see any difference. And in fact, in the early months of this new labor government, we can see that they're moving to accelerate some of those policies, particularly around what Australia is doing in the Pacific and what it is doing with its defense review that it's undertaking. So I don't see much of a change, although you know, superficially at least, the big difference with that we see is that all of a sudden um, Chinese officials are beginning to take meetings with their Australian counterparts, which they had not taken for the last two plus years. Hmm. I can understand why you get a bit fed up with the word hawks. <laughs> I mean, I used to write about uh, economics, and uh, at that time, hawks and doves uh, were used to describe people's approach to monetary policy. And those birds seem to have flown across into international <laughs> relations, but they're not particularly good ways of describing other countries' attitudes towards China, are they? One of the uh, conversations I have regularly with friends across the Indo-Pacific region is whether or not there's an arms race underway. Uh, you know, and this comes up sometimes in the context of AUKUS. Uh, and uh, my response generally tends to be, there's been an arms race underway for the past two decades, but it's been one-sided because it's only been the Chinese that have been participating in this. So as we look at countries, and Australia is, I think, a leading exemplar here, that are beginning to decide that they need to play catch up, that they need to invest uh, more deeply into their defense uh, equities. This isn't hawkish. This is simply a recognition of a change reality and how they're going to respond to it. Well, there surely is an arms race because in many parts of the world, uh, liberal democracies are trying to increase their defense spending. Certainly, it's one of the keynote policy of Britain's new prime minister, Liz Truss. Um, and of course, Australia, the United Kingdom and the US are tied together in this AUKUS plan that you mentioned. What's the point there of Australia having nuclear-powered submarines? So a great question, Duncan. And first of all, uh, AUKUS is broader than the nuclear-powered submarines, but they're really the attention-grabbing part, right? So there's also, that's track one. Track two of this is advanced capabilities, AI, quantum, undersea, hypersonic missiles. Uh, and when you add those two different tracks up, the entire point of this is to say that the balance of power in the region has shifted. And in order to write that balance between China and the other players, not only the United States, but its key allies need to have greater capabilities uh, in order to be able to defend themselves and push back against coercive behavior. And subsurface uh, nuclear-powered uh, submarines, no less some of these other advanced capabilities, uh, are thought to be able to provide some of the deterrent capabilities that will help convince Beijing that it is no longer operating in a permissive environment. So you describe them as a deterrent, but is, it, is there actually a risk then of uh, warships from the China's People's Liberation Army Navy attacking the Australian Merchant Navy, firing missiles at ships carrying goods in and out of Australia? So in the near term, uh, the answer is no to that, although we do uh, note that the uh, Chinese PLA and uh, the Air Force and the Navy have increasingly targeted uh, not only Australian, but American ships too. I mean, most recently, there was a, an encounter of the PLA 
flying directly in front of an Australian reconnaissance plane, releasing chaff in front of it that went into its uh, engine, right? This is typical of how the PLA is now operating, increasingly unsafe, the chances for miscalculation uh, rise. I, I don't think the Australians are planning at this point for an imminent breakout of hostilities between Australia and China. What they are worried about is an environment that leaves them increasingly isolated and cut off, right? That is an existential fear for an Australian policymaker because that would bring them back to the strategic situation they found themselves in in 1942. And when we look at what China has done first in the South China Sea, uh, right, building up and then militarizing its position, if we look at what China is trying to do now in the Pacific, much closer, the Pacific Islands to Australia, starting in the Solomon Islands, we can see the same uh, series of factors playing themselves out. On the diplomatic front, there's been no meeting between an Australian leader and a Chinese leader for a few years. China's ambassador to Australia, Zhao Qian, said that there's no point in having one because in his view, it would only make matters worse. Now, I find that a pretty striking comment from a diplomat. I mean, Joe Biden meets Xi Jinping fairly regularly, admittedly by video link, um, but they are planning a face-to-face -face meeting at some point soon. What's your view? Would a face-to-face -face meeting between Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Albanese make matters worse? I don't think it would make matters worse, but nor do I think it would necessarily uh, improve matters at all. It would be a nice optic for those who wanted to point to improving relations. Uh, in fact, even over the last couple of days, we've heard the Chinese ambassador to Australia beginning to float the idea of a face-to-face -face meeting uh, between Xi Jinping and Anthony Albanese. So this is not beyond the realm of the possible. But what we continue to hear from the Australians is they want to meet, they're happy to improve uh, rhetoric, but there will be no compromise on Australian national interests. Uh, and they will not go back to the Australian uh, regional security policy that they had before. You know, a large part of the Chinese critique is not about what Australia has said about China, but what it is doing internally. So I think there is a new uh, kind of baselining of where the relationship is and where it's going to be. Well, thank you, Charles. I feel I've gained a much better grasp of the situation as a result of your explanations. That was Dr. Charles Edel, Australia Chair and Senior Advisor at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our activities, including our courses and research, on the website soas.ac.uk. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.